If you're able, will you please stand and join me in reading today's scripture? Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, an Enoch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had to come to Jerusalem, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning in his seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And now the Enoch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the Enoch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. Philip and the Enoch and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the Enoch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself as at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You may have a seat. Well, good morning. Just a reminder that uh, all of our messages are available at mylpcoli.com forward slash media or on YouTube at LifePoint Church of Olympia. And uh, you can take notes today on your personal device at mylpcoli.com forward slash notes. If you've been with us for these messages recently, you'll recall that... uh, Following the martyrdom of Stephen, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that the Christ followers in Jerusalem fled the city, and they were scattered throughout the provinces of Judea uh, Judea and Samaria. And And he adds that all of those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that statement a bit perplexing. I mean, were they all preachers? Really, uh, in the classic sense, the idea that they all preached, I think, is a bit of a misnomer. It's probably better for us to regard what they did as what we today might just describe as sharing the gospel message wherever they went, with whomever 
they met. Not every Christian is a preacher, and we can thank God for that. Glory be to God that not every Christian is a preacher. And, and let's give thanks to God for, for his gifting of each of us. But every Christian ought to be able to share in a conversational way the message of the gospel. And I think that that may be a more accurate idea of what actually happened. I heard someone describe this as gossiping the gospel. And I, I love that expression, gossiping the gospel, just talking about Jesus in everyday conversations. <clears throat> Philip, on the other hand, was a preacher, or more accurately, an evangelist. And when everyone bailed out of Jerusalem, he went down to a city in Samaria, and uh, there he preached the gospel. It occurred to me this week that uh, there might not have been a better place to go than Samaria uh, if you were attempting to escape a mob of angry Jews from Jerusalem because they would never set foot in the place. Philip's preaching was accompanied by miraculous healings and exorcisms. The lame, the paralyzed were being healed. Those uh, who had demons living in them uh, were being delivered from the control of those demons. Many of the Samaritans believed and were baptized And Luke adds that there was great joy, great rejoicing in that city. See, when the gospel does its liberating work in in the hearts and the minds and the lives of those who believe, we experience a new liberation, don't we? A new freedom and great joy. Well, one of those who ostensibly believed was a man named Simon, who happened to be a famous and powerful magician, a sorcerer, really, um, an occultist, whom Luke records as the first, what we might call first false conversion in the early church. Um, That doesn't mean that it was in fact the first false conversion. There may have been others, but only that it's the first recorded. Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was conferred to believers when Peter and John, the apostles, laid their hands on them. And he and Simon said, I want some of that. I want some of that power. I want some of that authority. And so he offered money to Peter and John, thinking that they would be able to be willing to sell him the power of the Holy Spirit as if it was a commodity. Um, Another source of power, another bag of fun to put in his magician's tool bag. Peter proceeded to rebuke him, to expose the real condition of of his heart. Coincidentally, uh, in the past couple of weeks, we received from Josh and Ashley Seiler Freeman, our missionaries in Togo, Africa, two amazing photos that I want to share with you this morning. They had been witnessing to and praying for another magician and sorcerer, a local witch doctor, a practitioner of voodoo. And as a result, the spirit broke through in this man's life, and he believed in Jesus, put his faith in Christ, and was baptized. And so what you see there in the picture is uh, Josh Freeman in the blue shirt, uh, and then standing next to him is this witch doctor. But what's really awesome about this picture is that that fire that's behind them is 
that witch doctor's voodoo idols being burned and uh, putting that life behind him, renouncing it entirely. Let's go to the next picture. And then this is Josh baptizing that same man. And uh, how cool is that, huh? God is good, right? Several weeks ago, I challenged each of you to identify a person in your life for whom you will pray, and uh, that you would pray for them frequently, that you would pray for them faithfully, uh, and with whom you would share the gospel as, as God gives you opportunity until they come to personal faith in Jesus. Several of you gave us that first name of that person that you identified as your one. If you didn't get to do that, you can just pull out your next steps card today and say, this is my one. Just give up, just give us the first name, not the, not the, we don't, God knows their last name. We don't need to, uh, but we're just, we're just going to keep praying for those people that they will come to faith in Christ and, uh, and then we'll be able to rejoice someday with them as they, as they make that step. But you can put that on your next steps card and, and just drop it in the, the offering box this morning. You know, but maybe you've never shared the gospel with anyone before, and, and the very thought of doing something like that is intimidating to you. It, as uh, someone who used to attend here used to say, it gives me Tourette's. <laughs> what Philip did in Samaria, we might think of as mass evangelism, kind of the Billy Graham crusade concept of your, of evangelizing a crowd. And, but his encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch that we read about just moments ago on the road to Gaza, by contrast, is what we would call personal evangelism, evangelization of the one. So this morning, I, I, I want to lead you through this passage and observe in it several principles that I think might be helpful to us as we consider the prospect of actually sharing the gospel with people in our lives. Title this morning is Everyday Evangelism for Everyday Christians. Everyday Evangelism for Everyday Christians. Each of these principles that we'll consider together this morning are taken directly from the text. Each of them, as you can see on your notes form, includes the word up. Um, You may find that obnoxious. I think it's kind of fun. And I don't care what you think. So let's pray before we go any further. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, would you uh, make this real clear to us today? Would you make it really practical to us? Would you open the eyes of our hearts uh, to see and to receive the things that you want to reveal to us? And uh, may we be changed as a result of this um, moment in your word together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first principle I'm going to call listen up. Listen up. What, what Philip models for us very well as that evangelism involves attentive listening, first to God and then to those whom we're hoping to reach with the gospel. Um, There are lots of people who can talk, lots of people who can preach. Where are the effective listeners? And have you ever considered that the skill of listening, simply attending to the thoughts and the feelings of others, can be a powerful asset for personal evangelism? Uh, evangelism, sharing your faith, isn't just about blabbing. 
it involves listening probably first. Listening first. In today's text, Philip seems to do as much listening as as talking. In verse 26, for example, he, he listens and responds to an angel of the Lord. In verse 29, he listens and responds to the Spirit of God uh, speaking to him. And in verses 30 to 36, he attends to the spiritual questions of this Ethiopian eunuch and, and then leads him to faith in Christ. So that when we read in verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, or in verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip. It seems like it's said so matter-of-factly, doesn't it? Um, so, so how did Philip know that it was God who was speaking to him? Was it audible? Was it an inner voice? Was it an inner impression or, or an inner nudge? The answer to all those questions is we don't know. But here's something the Bible reveals is that God wants to speak to each of us. God wants to speak to you. And so learning to hear and to discern the voice of God is an essential discipline for every Christian. How is that done? I think the first thing that that each of us needs to do if we want to hear the voice of God is that we would personally believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, receive him into our lives. In John 20, 10, 27, during yet another of his confrontations with the Jewish leaders, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. But before that, he describes the general relationship between any shepherd and his sheep. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And then he adds later in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, the better we get to know Jesus, the more familiar we are with his voice. The the better you get to know God's word, the more the spirit of God fills you with his presence and his power, the more you'll be able to discern his voice and respond to it. There's a lot of voices speaking into our lives these days, aren't there? And we need to be able to, to discern when it's God speaking so that we're able to respond. Second principle in this passage is show up. Show up. Notice uh, verses 26 to 27. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is a desert place. And he rose and went. There's a beautiful symmetry here, and and I love this. The angel said, Rise and go, and Philip rose and went. And, you know, there, there's no, there's no negotiating, there's no stuttering, there's no resistance. You just rose and went. There's a command and there's obedience. I, I can never read this though without hearing my dad who, when he was tired at the end of the day, would say, my, my get up and go got up and went. <laughs> but notice what the angel says. 
First of all, he says, rise. Check. Go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Check. Wait. Where on that road? Now remember, Philip, as far as we know, is still in Samaria when this command comes. It's from the heart. We don't know what town he was in, but from the heart of Samaria down to Gaza, which we hear about every night in the news because the, that's the Palestinian territory today. From, from the heart of Samaria to Gaza is about 80 miles, give or take. From Samaria to Jerusalem is uh, 60 miles. I'm sorry, Samaria to Jerusalem is 100 miles. From Jerusalem down to Gaza is 60 miles. So Philip could legitimately ask, where exactly am I supposed to be on that 60-mile road? And then it says, this is a desert place, which I take to be uh, Luke's editorial comment at this point. Philip would have known that. But imagine for a moment that Philip said to himself, desert? Cool. You know, maybe there will be an oasis, a golf course, you know, a pool, a resort. Palm Springs, here I come. I think that's what he's, I think that's what was on his mind? No, I don't think so either. But the reality looked like this. Not exactly Palm Springs. No pool, no resort, no golf course, just a desert road. So Philip's called to a desert road in the middle of nowhere where no one would choose to spend much time at all if they really didn't have to. In those days, roads in the wilderness weren't considered particularly safe or particularly comfortable. Uh, and least of all, were they considered vacation destinations. So there's no explanation, there's no definition, just the command and the expectation of obedience. As if God was saying, just get there, Philip. My ways are not your ways. I'll take care of the details. And because Philip was okay with that, when God said, rise and go, Philip rose and went. From a human perspective, it, it hardly seemed like a good time or a good place or a good idea. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, in his love and his grace, was arranging a divine appointment with an Ethiopian eunuch. And whenever that happens, whenever that happens, nowhere becomes somewhere in the sovereign purpose of God. As I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of a book I read years ago by the late Francis Schaeffer in which he said, in God's kingdom, there are no little people and there are no little places. And that's something worthy of reflection, I think. So so what's the point here? Philip demonstrates for us the truth that half the job in evangelism is to just show up, which means that one sure way to never be an evangelist is to never be around people. 
The best way to never see that person you've identified as your one come to Christ is to never hang out with them. So show up. The next principle Philip demonstrates for us then is to step up. Step up. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, Luke rattles off six, count them, six fun facts to know and share about this man. And the first thing he, we learn about him, of course, is that he's an Ethiopian. He's a, a North African. He probably had black skin. Philip probably didn't. And secondly, we're told that he was a eunuch. What does that mean? Cover your kids' ears for just a minute. There are really only two possibilities. One is that he was physically castrated, either having been born that way or having been made that way surgically. That is, he lacked sexual capacity. So kings and rulers could trust eunuchs to oversee their harems because a eunuch posed no sexual threat. There are many examples in history of physical eunuchs having risen to high governmental positions. Second possibility here is that that designation eunuch actually pointed not to a physical impairment, but rather just to a high office, uh, which was sometimes the case. For example, in the in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Potiphar, who we, whom we meet in the book of Genesis, who bought Joseph as a slave in Egypt, is identified as eunokos in the Greek, eunokos, because he was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. But, of course, Potiphar was a married man. So you might not be an Ethiopian this morning. You might, might not be a eunuch. I hope you're not. Nevertheless, this has great application for you, so stay tuned. The next thing Luke tells us about this man is that he was, in fact, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So, so this guy in the Ethiopian government is a big deal. He, he's the secretary of the treasury. Uh, highly trusted, highly regarded, highly responsible. How many of you know someone named Candace? Anybody here know someone named Candace? One person. Anybody back there? Mallory, you know some? And you, three, four. Can I get five? <laughs> Candace. Some famous modern women named Candace. For example, actor Candace Bergen, actor Candace Cameron Bure of Hallmark Channel movies, infamy, or fashion model Candace Swanepoel. And apparently there's, there's actually even a Pokemon character whose name is Candace. And there's no charge for that information at all. But the Candace that's mentioned here in Acts 8 is not a personal name. It's a title. And it wasn't pronounced Candace, it was pronounced Kandaki. Kandaki, like candy with a duck in the middle. It was, it was a title used by a number of female rulers in Ethiopia 
It parallels titles like Pharaoh in Egypt or Caesar in Rome. Then, then Luke says that this eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning. That's interesting to me. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship. He hadn't come to Jerusalem as an ambassador on official business. This wasn't a business trip. He had come on something of a personal pilgrimage. It was a long trip. I, I was looking at uh, Google Maps, and, and it says that it's somewhere around 2,400 miles from Addis Ababa in, in Ethiopia uh, to Jerusalem. And of course, Ethiopia in those days was a fr- little bit further north, kind of where Sudan is today. So it was a long trip. It was probably in the vicinity of at least 3,000 miles because there weren't freeways in those days. And it was probably a once-in-a-lifetime journey for this man. And it's very possible, although we're not told, that he was a proselyte, uh, an Ethiopian who had converted to Judaism, one of those that uh, the New Testament often refers to as God-fearers. Not actual, uh, not fully Jewish, but uh, proselytes to Judaism. But if, in his case, eunuch meant that he had a physical impairment, then here's what it would have been his experience coming to worship in Jerusalem, having come all that way, that vast distance, with all of its risks and all of its exposure, this eunuch who had come to worship in Jerusalem would have been denied entry into the inner courts of the temple. In fact, you can read about that in Leviticus 21 and Deuteronomy 23. I'm not going to read that today, but you want to, might want to jot those references on the screen down. He, he would have been faced with the same dilemma faced by the, the lame man at the beautiful gate that we learned about in chapter 3 of Acts, who because of his lameness was not able was not allowed to enter in to the inner courts of the temple to worship with his people. What's important to our study today is that he's, he's on his way home. He's seated in his chariot. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. But you know what strikes me most powerfully about this scenario? It's that the man was returning home from Jerusalem, having come to worship, having come on this spiritual pilgrimage. He's returning home as spiritually dark and as spiritually empty as he had come. But he had brought something worthwhile away from Jerusalem, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. I have to have to wonder how rare it must have been for the Ethiopian to own a personal copy wasn't common in those days for anyone to have a personal copy. All of the scrolls were kept in the synagogues and in the temple. Uh, maybe he had had the wealth to purchase one. I heard someone say casually that the, the eunuch picked one up in Jerusalem before he left as a souvenir of his trip. And I, I don't think there were souvenir shops, and I, I don't think it was anywhere near that easy to acquire. But in a moment, we're going to see that that Philip's text that he would preach to this man was all ready for him. And what better text could he have wanted than Isaiah 53 that we 
saw presented in the video. So check this out. Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The mission in Jerusalem encompasses the first seven chapters of Acts. The mission in Samaria began at the beginning of chapter 8, where we are now, as Philip went down to that city in Samaria, proclaimed Christ there. And now, to the Jews in Israel, this eunuch from Ethiopia would have represented the very ends of the earth. Someone from far, far away, the kingdom of far, far. The mission of the church is already taking shape in just the way Jesus said it would, in the very sequence in which Jesus said it would. Its fulfillment has already begun. God had specific plans for this man as he was on his way to his home country. I was listening to a sermon online this week, and I just kept rolling my eyeballs as the speaker kept referring to this meeting between Philip and the eunuch as a chance encounter. A chance encounter, and he just kept repeating it, and I, I was got more and more agitated. It wasn't a chance encounter. Why would you call it that? See, in effect, God said to Philip, get yourself to this road, wherever on its 80-mile stretch you choose, and I'll sovereignly arrange the meeting. I'll get the two of you together because you're the guy I've chosen, and this is the guy that, that I'm Drawing to myself, I'm going to make sure that that happens. And now here they are. The meeting's about to begin. The eunuch is seated in his chariot. He's probably traveling in a caravan. Think of a governmental motorcade, limos, escalades, suburbans, except in this case as chariots and wagons. Maybe there were little flags of Ethiopia mounted promptly, uh, prominently on the front of his chariot. I don't know. But the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join that chariot. And maybe here's another principle. Hurry up, because Philip ran up to the chariot. Got to show some respect for Philip here, because the way I picture this is that the chariot's being pulled by at least one or more powerful horses, and, and the chariot's moving while Philip is running. And I don't really care how you picture it because I picture Philip as this stud athlete. He's running with horses. And it's very cool in a macho sort of way. I, I love this picture. But the next principle then is speak up. Speak up. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus, about Jesus. 
Do you think for a moment that it was mere chance that he was reading the 53rd chapter of the prophet Isaiah? So here's this guy, just, just one guy. God's heart is for the one as well as for the many. When Christ died, he died for the one as well as for the many. He died for you and he died for me. The Bible tells us that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. And the man didn't know it, but God had already decided that this was his day. That that before the day came to a close, he would be introduced to his Messiah, his Savior. His life would be transformed. His questions would be answered. He would be baptized by a Jewish guy with a Greek accent. So Philip's running, and he breaks into an open sprint. This is my version of the story. And he catches up with the chariot, and he hears him reading. How did he know he was reading the prophet Isaiah? Well, the practice in those days was to read out loud. That's kind of convenient, isn't it? So Philip's running alongside the chariot, and he asks him a great question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch replies, how can I? How can I unless someone guides me? I imagine the next thing he said as Philip was trying to keep up with the horses was, dude, are you okay? You don't look so good. Why don't you climb up in the chariot here and have a seat next to me? To have a Bible and to have someone explain it to you is an indescribable gift from God. We take it so for granted, don't we? We often think that if we're going to share Christ with someone, we need to have all the answers, don't we? A friend of mine calls that trying to be Google for God. And we should study the words so that we can provide the best answers we can, but sometimes it's just as valuable, just as strategic to ask a really good question like, do you understand what you're reading? Have any thoughts about Jesus? Do you have any religious convictions? To have a Bible and to have someone explain it to you, in fact, is a really a foundational definition of personal discipleship. It's at least the beginning. Listen to this from John Stott. He says, the fact is that God has given us two gifts. First, the scriptures, and second, teachers to open up, explain, expound, and apply the scriptures. It's wonderful to note God's providence in the Ethiopian's life, first enabling him to have a copy of the Isaiah scroll, and then sending Philip to teach him out of it. And here's the part of Isaiah 53 that Luke says the eunuch was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. I imagine that the eunuch read those 
verses aloud again to him, and then he asked this total softball question. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? I don't want you to miss the central role that the Word of God plays in this encounter. The Spirit of God sovereignly, supernaturally guides Philip to this conversation with the Ethiopian. That is true. But observe that there are no, what we would call classic signs and wonders happening. Nobody's speaking in tongues. No one's doing anything ecstatic. Nobody's being healed. God uses his word and an obedient servant who is willing to patiently sit with this Ethiopian, help him to see that the prophet was describing Jesus of Nazareth and lead him to personal faith. So I wanted you to see this video that we watched earlier. Patiently opening up the scriptures, allowing his Jewish friends to read from the prophet Isaiah and simply asking really good questions. Do you need a savior? Do you need atonement for your sin? What do you think of Jesus? Who do you think this is describing? Great questions. Charles Spurgeon said that the preacher's responsibility no matter what text and scripture is in view, is to read the text and then make a beeline for Jesus. And that's a great picture. It applies just as well to our personal sharing of our faith with others as it does to someone like me standing in a place like this. And that's precisely then what Philip does with that passage from Isaiah, which which really may not have been a difficult task, given that the passage is, in fact, all about the atoning work of Christ. So beginning with the scriptures from Isaiah, Philip shared the good news of Jesus with him. What Philip did with the eunuch, I think, is strikingly similar to what Jesus did with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Just lifting lifting truths out of God's word. Now, notice as well that Philip doesn't share his personal story of faith, which, you know, many would say is the essence of witnessing, telling your story, and, and, and that is valuable. Sometimes that's super important, but, but the eunuch's question was from the Bible. And so Philip didn't waste any time. He taught him from the Bible. And remember what Paul wrote to the Romans, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who run alongside chariots and preach the good news. Well, your next blank is follow-up, follow-up. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So why did the eunuch ask this question? 
I don't know. Maybe Philip had taught him as they were sitting there in the chariot that it's the appropriate step for one who is a believer in Jesus to be baptized. Um, if this man was a, a, a Jewish proselyte, he may have understood the role that baptism played in Judaism and it, and in his mind kind of connected the dots. And, and when you think about it, who would there have been in Ethiopia when he arrived to baptize him there? But again, notice that this was not even close to a chance encounter. The Holy Spirit had thoroughly prepared the eunuch's heart. So thoroughly that it seems he believed immediately. And immediately understood his need to be baptized. And his baptism marks his formal and full identification with Christ and with his people, the church. Prophet Isaiah, just three chapters later, gives this wonderful promise to eunuchs. Eunuchs. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better, better, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What a wonderful promise. Perhaps when it was all done, they, they sang the words of Psalm 68, 31 to 32. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will stretch out her hands to God. Oh, kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. See what's happening here? The gospel's breaking out of the boundaries of Israel. The gospel is breaking out of the boundaries of Judaism. The ends of the earth are coming to Christ. There is here a wonderful illustration of the Great Commission. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. The nations are represented by this Ethiopian who has put his faith in Christ, who has become a disciple himself. There's baptism. There's teaching. There is the presence and convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and it's all operative in this moment. The gospel is breaking out of the bounds of Jerusalem, breaking out of the bounds of Israel, breaking out of the bounds of Judaism itself. Verses 39 to 40, it's beam me up, beam me up. A couple of you laughed, thank you. Nobody laughed in the first service, so I appreciate that you had your coffee. 
But notice what happens here. The, the, the remarkable thing in verses 39 to 40, when they came up out of the water, and don't, don't miss that, by the way, baptism by immersion. They came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. See, if you're hoping for some signs and wonders, little pop and sizzle in this story, here it is. Those two words, carried away, actually translate the Greek word harpazo. And it means to be snatched up and away. Suddenly and decisively. It's the word that appears in 1 Thessalonians 4 to describe the event that we call the rapture. When the church will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds and in the air so that we're forever with the Lord. The same word. In this case, the Spirit of the Lord seemingly takes Philip on a hypersonic ride to Azotus, which is modern-day Ashdod in southern Israel, the largest port in Israel on the Mediterranean. And you just picture, you know, it says Philip found himself at Azotus as if he lost himself along the way. Oh, there you are. But but no, he says, where where am I? Right? And so he's he's like, Oh, this is, this is Azotus. How did I get here? Well, the Spirit of the Lord carried you away, Philip. The Spirit of the Lord raptured you to Azotus. <laughs> and then Philip did what Luke tells us the apostles earlier told us that the apostles did in verse 25. He, he preached the gospel in, in all the towns as he moved up the coast toward his home in Caesarea. And the eunuch went on his way back to Ethiopia, rejoicing. Finally, wrap up. Let me just give you three applications here that I, I think are important to our quest to be effective in sharing our faith with others. The first one is to learn to love like Philip Loved. You know, we're not told an awful lot about Philip. Um, we're told enough to think, to, to, to realize he was a pretty special guy. And what was really especially special about Philip was that he loved people. Whether it was the widows in Jerusalem or foreigners like this Ethiopian eunuch, Philip loved people. And to be an effective evangelist, you need a big heart for people. So ask yourself, do I love the people around me? Do I love my family and my friends and my neighbors, my co-workers? Do I, do I love my irritating neighbor? Do I love that person? You, do, do you love that person you identified as your one? And, and if not, then ask God to simply fill your heart with love for him or her. God is pleased to answer that prayer. Lord, would you fill my heart with love for this person? How do you grow in love for others? First, by asking for it. Secondly, by 
reading and studying and reflecting on the gospel, the gospel itself. In Romans 5, verse 8, we read that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, that while we were still separated from God, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He took the first step. He sent his son, God sent his son Christ to die in our place. There's two other expressions used in that passage. It says when we were still helpless, we, we couldn't save ourselves. There was nothing we could do to, to achieve our own salvation. It also says while we were still hostile toward God, even when we were angry toward him, his enemies, Christ died for us. And see, when the gospel does its work deeply in our hearts, we grow in love for others because we realize how unworthy we ourselves were of God's great love toward us. Notice that on his way home, Philip didn't just go to the major cities. He went to the little places. He went to Tenino and Toledo, to Rainier and to Rochester, to Oakville and on Alaska. He, he knew that there were no little people and there were no little places in the kingdom of God, that everyone matters to God. Secondly, be led by the Spirit. What do I mean by that? Just, well, respond. Rise up and go. When the Spirit speaks and when he sends you. He, here's what I know in my own experience. I experience far more nudges from the Spirit than I ever proactively respond to. Just true confession here. And maybe you're like me in that, I don't know. But I can come up with excuses. I can manufacture all kinds of rationalizations. I'm great at postponements. And for so many of us, our default response when when the Spirit says, rise up, show up, step up, speak up, is more like Jonah than like Philip. Not me. Not there. Not them. Not my gift. Send someone else. Well, here's a newsflash. We've already been sent. We've already received the great commission to make disciples. It's non-negotiable. We're already accountable. And so we shouldn't need God to kind of spell out someone's name in our alphabet soup for us to get up and get moving. Third, lead people to Jesus from the Scriptures. Something I've noticed in my life is that the some who are all about being led by the Holy Spirit never, ever seem to have their Bible open. And at the same time, many who are all about the Bible, all about sound doctrine, can frequently act as if the Holy Spirit doesn't even exist. Or if he's, or, or that he's irrelevant. Philip combined both of the good things there. He combined a knowledge of God's word he com- with a great awareness of the Spirit. And then he added to that an openness to being led by him. So get to know the Bible and ask God to keep filling you with his Spirit. Use questions. There are four questions in this passage that are asked, engage in dialogue. You'll find, here's what I think you'll find if you engage in dialogue, if you just ask questions, if you just listen to the answers that are given. 
is that the words will be there. You, you'll know what to say because you know the gospel. Patiently, lovingly teach the gospel to the people in your life from the Bible. Let me just give you uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven quick questions as we close. When was the last time you had a gospel conversation with someone who didn't know Christ? When was the last time you had a gospel conversation with someone who didn't know Christ? Secondly, do you love people who are far from God? Did you genuinely love your one? Third, do you understand the gospel well enough to articulate it simply to others? Heard the true story of a renowned theologian who, towards the end of his life, and this guy was a, a professor of theology in a major seminary, and he was asked near the end of his life, Sir, with all of your learning and all of your study, what's the most important thing that you have to share? And he said, here it is. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Articulate the gospel as simply and as clearly as you can. Are you prepared to give an answer to those who ask you about your faith? Do you trust that God loves people so much that he will sovereignly orchestrate your relationships and your conversations and your schedule for his purposes? Do you believe that if you'll open your mouth at the right time, God will surgically remove your foot from your mouth and put in there the words he has for you to say? Do you believe that the Spirit is dependent on your ability to not screw things up? You know, in the Old Testament, God spoke through an ass, and so he can speak through me. And he can speak through you. If we'll just open our mouths, if we'll just open our ears, if we'll just open our hearts, we'll just open God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great story. I love this story. But it also challenges me. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would apply these things to our hearts and minds, that we would reflect on them, that we would implement them, and that uh, we would see greater productivity for the kingdom of God as we make ourselves simply available to you. Thank you that Philip connected with this man, or more accurately, you connected Philip with him and him with Philip, and that your Holy Spirit was there and that you transformed his life. Lord, we don't know the rest of the story of that man's life, but we have to believe that you had a distinct purpose and introducing him to, to Jesus as his Messiah before he got back to his home country. And uh, that you had an impact you intended through his life there. And we look forward to hearing that story in heaven. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.